You're listening to Pathways, an interview podcast featuring people of colour in the arts and humanities. My name is Julie, my pronouns are she and her, and I'm kind of, I'm pretty new to this this stage of um, life, of my career. I finished my honours in 2018. I did a combined honours in criminology and French. I did a crim thesis in French, which was really fun. Um, and I finished my Masters of Social Policy in the first semester of 2020. I'm a fresh baby and I have been basically just tutoring in criminology um, since I finished my honours. And really in terms of where I'm interested in research and in teaching and in life is um, the criminalization, representation, migration processes of queer people in North Africa and the Middle East, very specifically in Egypt. Um, and that's that's where all of my interests really lie. Like how are queer people represented, spoken about, how do they live um, in Egypt and beyond, really, yeah. How did you know that that was something you were interested in? It kind of, <laughs> it's a good question because it kind of happened uh, really by accident. Uh, so in, like, the, I remember the very first class of my master's, um, the, the lecturer that was teaching it was like, academia is basically just um, academics who want to understand their own lives better. And I was like, fuck you, Leah, that's not me. And, you know, 100%, it, it definitely was. Um, you know, it basically started with, I was watching the, the region really closely and it was born out of, um, a concert that happened in 2017 in Cairo where uh, you had 35,000 people that were there and people raised pride flags in, in this concert and what it provoked was like a really 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 big strong and aggressive violent state crackdown on queer people for raising raising a, a pride flag and I suppose it was just it was a really scary time to see how queer people, queer people were being represented and spoken about and you know the way it was being associated with terrorism and just all of the discursive links that were being made I found it really interesting but I was also really uh, I suppose I want to I want to say disappointed with what was out there in terms of academic research because that was the first place that I turned to in order to understand it and there really wasn't much work coming out of Egypt or the Middle East, there's not a lot of work coming out of it on these topics. And it made me really upset because, you know, I wanted to hear it from Egyptians and I wanted to hear it from Middle Eastern people. Um, and, it, you know, all of this work was coming out from like white people in, in the US and, and universities in the UK and it really upset me and I realised that, well, the reason this kind of work isn't coming out of Egypt itself is because it's just not safe. Uh, and I think once I realised that, I was like, okay. So the burden kind of falls on uh, people in diaspora, people uh, like myself who, okay, if you have some kind of connection to it and you have the position, you have the capability to tell these stories, that's a, that's a hell of a burden to bear and you'd better take it really seriously and you'd better you know, use your reflexivity and you had better really do your very best to ensure that given that very, very little is coming out of the region itself, if you are one of the small voices that is contributing to representing this narrative, you better do it well. I think people don't really necessarily realise just how much of a Western framework they've internalised. 
Uh, and I really, really want to challenge that and contest that as much as I possibly can, right? So like we have this framework about, you know, coming out and why it's important to come out. And then they like, you know, I, t I take this and I apply it to the Egyptian context and I say, okay, fine, we'll come out as, as what? Because in the Arabic language, we don't have a single word to express queer or gay or lesbian or whatever. That isn't a, a slur. That isn't a really pejorative, terrible thing to call yourself. And so I'm not going to sit my parents down and be like, Mom, Dad, I gotta tell you, I'm a, I'm a sodomite, or like I'm a deviant or a criminal, which is, which is, uh, pretty much the words that we have for it in Arabic. And so when I have the opportunity to share this with a bunch of really switched-on students who are going to be the next generation of policy makers and leaders and work in spaces of, in, in these spaces. It's it's really, it really makes me happy to know that I was able to impart this and then they can take this and apply it in their future careers where they're going to be my bosses one day, you know? It's interesting because I, I don't know, I feel like one of the themes that I've sort of been picking up is that like, people from diaspora communities do feel that like, some sort of sense of like, obligation to like, mm tell that story um, and yeah even if it means you know in this context of just like being an academic just to understand yourself better but like that's part of what it is right like it's yeah or at least to ensure that I'm represented in a way that isn't fundamentally about the trauma that we have endured because it's so much more than that in, in terms of the way that this is represented currently it's really just oh isn't it really hard for queer people in the Middle East but it's it's so much more than that once, once we come away from the, oh, isn't it hard, the government persecutes queers. Um, you know, once, once we come away from that, we start digging, we start doing the research, we come to find out that, for example, queerness was um, a very prominent feature of, of ancient Egyptian and a really uh, ancient Egyptian societies and a really common feature um, of our history. And the reason it's so heavily criminalized today has its roots in colonialism and where, um, and where these laws came from that are used to persecute queer people and how these laws came about and why they came about and the route that um, the the role that British settlers played and it's and so this is something that isn't represented when you have this sort of voyeuristic gaze into the region which I would I would hope that Egyptians don't have when it comes to looking at their own countries so yeah it's really important that not only that we tell these stories but that we tell them from a strengths-based perspective I feel like that's sort of been a problem with academia at least for a while now in terms of like always having that kind of western gaze mm. and i was like when did you first kind of become aware of that as a problem how <laughs> i think this was something that was pretty apparent even from uh, my undergrad days where you know you look at the readings in a particular course and it's the same, uh, especially within criminology and social sciences. It's always like Foucault and Weber and Bourdieu and, uh, you know, all of the same old dead white theorists. And then maybe we'll have a token week on race and gender in the criminal justice system, race in the criminal justice system. And let's see how we can clunkily try and make these theories fit. Uh, and they don't always fit. And I think that's perhaps the first time that I realized that this is something that is really quite ingrained in the system and that the reason it's so pervasive is that in undergrad when you're an undergraduate i don't know about you but it took me a really long time to realize that i actually could have my own <laughs> i could have my own opinions on the theories that we were being presented with and that when it came to essay writing for example that i could literally write on whatever i want and i don't necessarily have to use um what is being presented to me as the standard and the sole way of interpreting a particular social phenomenon and once I was able to do that it really opened up this whole new world of like um, I 
was pointed in the direction of some it sort of mimicked the history of sexuality by Foucault by looking purely at the MENA region and he presents this idea of the, the gay international and how the West instrumentalizes the bodies of queer people in the Middle East and how they're just completely different epistemologies and that we can't necessarily reduce one to this one central approach of looking at it and apply it to the Middle East because they're not applicable, they're not um, yeah, universalizable, if that's a word. So I think that would be the, the, the first time that I did realize it. And once I found the one text, I, I, that sends you down the rabbit hole of like, okay, now I have this whole work of knowledge that I can, I can go back and follow autobiographies and I can follow bibliographies and I can see where all of this. And it was, it was like striking gold. It was so exciting. I want to go back a little bit further. Okay. Um, so I'm thinking like final year high school, first year uni, first year <sighs> kind of thing. Did you see yourself kind of going this way? <laughs> not, not at all. Um, I think pretty much everything has been a huge accident or fluke and uh, I really benefited from, <laughs> I really benefited from uh, nepotism really in the sense that I was, I had a few connections in terms of like lecturers that I knew that really fought for me and really gave me opportunities and you know really kind of people in my life that were like hey you should look into this or you should look into this or hit us um, hit up this person. First year uni and end of year high school I saw myself going into law <laughs> and doing and doing the JD as every um, you know child of a migrant sees themselves going I was like yeah I'm gonna go to Melbourne uni I'm gonna do the Melbourne uni model I think that sounds like a really good idea I'll do my undergrad in arts, social sciences, criminology. It'll um, be a good base to understand the criminal justice system. I, I, and now my life goal is to steer away the criminology students from law. People that are like, I, I, I sometimes ask students like, where do you want to go after you, you know, finish your undergrad? And they're like, probably the JD, you know, I'm going to sit the LSAT and I want to be a human rights lawyer or an environmental lawyer. And I'm like, you don't go down this way. Please don't go down this way. You're going to be swamped with casework. You won't have enough funding to make any sort of structural change. And the whole point is that we acknowledge that the system is fundamentally flawed, that it is built on um, genocide, and that you know this system of law has no legitimacy whatsoever. Why would you devote your life to working within its extremely narrow confines? Go work in policy <laughs> or somewhere else, anywhere else. To be quite honest, I don't really know where I'm going to go. Um, <laughs> I don't really know where I'm going to go in, in life, whether I'm going to continue in research or whether um, you know, I have a master's in policy, whether I'll go into policy. I do have a pipe dream. You want to hear a pipe dream that I have, Mark? This is like, I'm talking 20 years into the future that I would have, um, I look a lot to the US and their racial and ethnic studies and Afro-American studies and I would love to have a subject on Middle Eastern and North African Oriental sexual epistemologies. I would oh, love that. It would be so good. We could look into criminalization, we could look into the role of colonialism, we could look into the way that sexuality in and of itself differs between these, these two, the, between the East and the West as it were, and, and why that's important, you know? Why it's important that homosexuality as itself is is fundamentally a Western construct, and then what are the implications of it? This is what is taken um, as the standard. I would love to do that. 
Uh, but other than that, I am <laughs> pretty open to see where the world's going to take me, to be honest. I don't know if it's a research thing or an arts and humanities thing, or just like a life thing, but it's sort of like part of it is like you can't make decisions or big decisions too early. It's like part of it is just like saying yes to things that come up along the way. That's exactly, that's exactly what it is, because no one can really plan for um, when an opportunity springs up and you have two weeks to write an application for, for a grant or something. Um, and you just kind of have to throw yourself into it and really open yourself up. It's, you have to be a bit vulnerable because there is always the looming possibility of rejection and that's fine. That's fine. You might have to eat a slice of humble pie, um, as I have a, a lot, <laughs> as I have a fair few times. But yeah, you're very right. It's just about sort of being flexible to what's open and out there and saying yes when it comes up, when you have the opportunity to. I've been grateful for that. You use the word nepotism, but like I know what you mean. <laughs> you kind of like meet people along the way and like you will have people who will point you towards things. But like, mm. how does one do that? How do you network? For me, it really came about in honours, I would say, because you have... You're not, you're not really in, in undergrad, but you sort of are, but you have a much closer relationship with your supervisors and it's a much smaller cohort. Um, so for me, it was emailing people and asking, hey, can I please sit down? Because my, my supervisor was in the French department and I had um, sometimes some sort of fiddly criminology theory topics um, and questions that I needed to ask. But the, a lot of the lecturers were just so generous with their time. And I'd email them in advance and say, hey, I have this thesis topic. Would you mind if I run a few questions by you? You show them that you've done some preparation, that you're not um, just going in there and wasting their time and expecting them to do work for you. You go in there, you show that you've done some work, you show that you've done some prep, you take notes, you really show them that you're taking their time seriously and you keep in touch with them. So for me, that's pretty much how it, how it worked. I stayed on good terms with them and then throughout my master's, um, whenever there's an opportunity to do something, do it if you can. If there's a program that's happening, um, apply for it. Don't, yeah, I, I always have in the back of my mind, like, what's the point of even applying when there's other people? And you know what, just do it. Because a lot of the time that'll give you at least great access to people that are in good positions that will root for you and that will fight for you. Even if this particular option or opportunity doesn't work out, they will keep you in mind for the next one, or you can keep them in mind and have this great relationship, or at least they can provide you with a great reference if they're higher ranking. Um, yeah, a lot of the time people won't hesitate. Hey, can you please write me a letter of recommendation? Absolutely. And they sit there and they stroke your little ego and they're like, oh, this is so nice. You think this about me? Thank you. <laughs> so I think just being nice, be, being nice, being really showing that you take their time and their expertise seriously for me helped a lot. Um, and it meant that I was also able to learn a lot from them very, very quickly. Um, so, yeah, I'm very grateful for it, but that's what I would recommend doing. Even, even when you are an undergrad, you can, um, you know, sit there and, like, make a consult with your, with your tutor or your lecturer and ask them questions about their work if you have questions about it. I, I would really love for people to take full advantage of the, the opportunities in the system that is in front of them. It's like, that you can ask them anything and they're like, hell yeah, I love talking about my research. Are you serious? Absolutely. Or go out and ask, hey, can I volunteer as, a, as an RA? Can I do your references for you or something? You know, it sucks that you, <laughs> that if, the, if they don't have funding, they can't pay you. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they won't have funding in future with which they can pay you. You can't expect people really to pick you out from the shadows and be like, you, you are the one. Because they don't know you. I was out there in second year and like, sort of sitting there with my, with my arms folded like, damn, why does that person get to 
get all these get all these opportunities because they asked man so i really wouldn't be afraid of approaching people and asking them what you what you do worst that can happen is they'll say no what is the best advice you would have, you have ever received or that you would pass on the best advice that i've ever received with respect to presenting myself in an academic space and presenting myself in a workplace or any sort of environment like that uh has really been to represent myself and my work through a strength based perspective i think that i once i had really learned what that means um what that meant i think that changed a lot for me because i i think that we sort of have a tendency to i'm talking about you know people of the diaspora as it were are kind of gatekept by their trauma you know what is it like to be a black woman who does this or a brown woman who does this and it must be so terrible and and for me it was like oh you're egyptian and you're and you're and you're gay and you come from an from an orthodox family wow that must be really terrible and and egypt is so fundamentally hostile and for me it's not about um that is so irrelevant to the work that i'm trying to do and what i'm trying to achieve because that is not even the half of it that it is structurally difficult the most important thing is like yeah but look at this community look at the way that we exist and what we have overcome and what we are able to build and how this is effectively a blank slate that we can use to revolutionize literally revolutionize the the entire region is that not more exciting than it was really it was was yeah i guess my parents were a bit home but that just that, that is firstly none of your business none of your concern um and this is something that professionally speaking no one you would not be asked if uh, you were just a white person you know what it is what that that um desire or like that reflex to to put forth your sort of trauma porn is responding to people's assumptions and what they have internalized and their immediate snap judgment of what it must be like to have your experience. And so refusing that and rejecting that for me has been really liberating because I put myself and I force myself to be seen on equal footing if not um higher than everyone else. Like I'm not going to let you put me into a box. I'm not going to let your assumptions dictate who and what I am because I know who and what I am. And so for me that has been the most um liberating and the, the most life-changing advice is really resisting and rejecting trauma point and knowing that i have a right to be here and that i have a right to show my color and wear my crown and whatever it is i want to do as i am and that i don't need to instrumentalize myself in order to belong that's not my my ticket to entry now that you have this like oh, <laughs> this this little trauma about me now i'm allowed to enter i think i'm just fine as i am Do you have any book recommendations? Oh, book recommendations. Yeah, do you want fiction or non-fiction? That is a good question. Uh, what niche? Yeah, good. Good. Excellent. Book recommendations, I think my favorite one of all time that is uh fiction, sort of fiction, um is Persepolis by Marjane Satrapi. Of course, one of my one of my favorites of all time. If not Persepolis, maybe Chicken with Plums. Uh is it is so good. Really, really good. Uh but also in terms of non-fiction and theory that I quite like, I would recommend uh Necropolitics by Ashima Bembe. It's an extension of um he works with what Foucault has established about biopolitics and the exploitation of the body, but he really explores through a post-colonial lens 
the, the liminal space between life and death and the political capital that comes with that. And necropolitics has been used time and time again in a lot of um, queer theory and a lot of, yeah, a lot of, yeah, good, good queer theory. Like necropolitics is a really good theoretical start to exploring the position of the racialized body between life and death. That's where I would recommend starting. <laughs> You've been listening to Pathways. This interview was recorded by me, Mark, and was made possible by... Mehur, the editor. And... Julia, the social media manager. You can read an abridged version of the transcript online at pocpathways.com. Keep an eye out for our next episode on our Instagram at poc.pathways. See you next time.